Holy cow, it's the final season of Golden Girls Sports. Marcus Allen. Mike Tyson. Extra innings. The tight end decoys, so it looks like we're running a draw play. Magic Johnson. Bobby Old. Tampa Bay Bucks. And they're off! The pig takes the lead. The chicken... Foreign Exchange premiered on May 6, 1989, the 24th episode of the Golden Girls' fourth season and 100th episode overall. It was written by the husband and wife team of Sandy and Harriet Helberg and directed by Terry Hughes. Sophia gets a visit from friends Philomena and Dominic Bosco and their daughter Gina, who have flown in from Sicily. They all met when Philomena and Sophia were each giving birth to their respective daughters in the same hospital back in Brooklyn. The Boscos moved back to the old country, but now they've returned with a shocking revelation. They believe Dorothy is their true daughter, and Gina isn't. The whole thing sounds preposterous until we get a very well-composed look at tall, lean Dorothy and Philomena, and short, bespeckled Sophia and Gina squaring off comic book style. The one taking this the hardest is Dorothy, who doesn't want to believe that her whole life has been a lie. I couldn't sleep. I just keep thinking about Ma and whose mother she really is. You're worried she might be Gina's? No, I'm worried she might be Phil Rizzuto's. <laughs> Notice the phrase, holy cow, creeping into her conversation. <laughs> Sophia goes to get a blood test to put the whole thing to bed. And when she gets the results, she tears them up because at this point, they don't really matter. She has always been Dorothy's mother. When they get home... Blanche and Rose are practicing their dirty dancing, and the Boscos are already packed and on their way back to Sicily because reasons. Again, it doesn't really matter. Writers Sandy and Harriet Helberg said their story idea was inspired by reports of babies being switched at hospitals that they saw on former tabloid news show A Current Affair. They also wrote scripts for Perfect Strangers and Dear John, and have both worn additional hats in Hollywood. Sandy's been acting professionally since the early 70s, mostly in comedies like New Heart, This is Spinal Tap, and Spaceballs as Dr. Schlotkin. He appeared on five different episodes of Trapper John M.D. and on all six episodes of early 70s sitcom Flatbush. In addition to her writing credits, Harriet was better known as a casting director, having worked on Night Court, Benson, Barney Miller, and Brian De Palma's Carrie, among many others. The pair have two sons, one of whom is actor Simon Helberg, who stars as Howard Wolowitz on The Big Bang Theory. The Boscos were played by a trio of actors who would each appear twice on The Golden Girls. Philomena was played by actress Nan Martin, who played cranky old lady Frida Claxton in the season two episode, It's a Miserable Life. There's no doubt that her physical similarity to B. Arthur was noted, making her an easy call for the part of Philomena. We talked extensively about Martin's career way back in episode two of this podcast. Daughter Gina was played by Flo DeRay, who got the part by replicating what Estelle Getty had done to win the role of Sophia years earlier. She dressed herself up in a sweater, glasses, and a purse purchased from a thrift store and burst into the audition already in character. Quote, it worked. They all laughed. Then I did something I'd watched Estelle do and I loved. I turned and stared at them like they were crazy. I really think that making that entrance was why I ended up getting the part. End quote. DeRay's physical similarity to Estelle Getty was used again in Clinton Avenue Memoirs, the season four Golden Girls episode that includes a flashback to the Petrillo family's early days in Brooklyn. 
DeBray played Sophia as a young mother, while Kyle Hefner and Jandy Swanson played young Salvador and little girl Dorothy, respectively. DeRay made a number of single-episode appearances on sitcoms and dramas throughout the 80s and 90s before finding a niche in voiceover work. She's lent her voice to video games Fallout 2, Devil May Cry 2, and Spyro Year of the Dragon. Most recently, she could be heard on Star Wars The Clone Wars TV series as Jedi Master Jocasta Nu. Finally, Dominic Bosco was played by longtime character actor Vito Scotti, who specialized in playing cartoonish Italian guys in TV sitcoms for decades. A year before Foreign Exchange premiered, Scotty had appeared on the Golden Girls Season 3 episode, Rose's Big Adventure, in which he played a saucy but mostly blind and wheelchair-bound Italian contractor named Vincenzo, who the girls hired to renovate their garage into a bedroom. Born in San Francisco in 1918, Scotty's family moved to Naples in the 1920s, then back to New York, where his mother was a diva in the theater. Vito acquired a taste for comedy in Italy, and worked in nightclubs in New York as a mime and a magician before appearing on Broadway in Pinocchio. From there, it was onto movies and TV, where he replaced J. Carol Nash in the role of Luigi Bosco, the title character in the series Life with Luigi. The show was popular and based on an already popular radio show, but complaints from the Italian-American community about the stereotyped characters forced producers to try making changes, one of which was hiring an actual Italian to play the Italian immigrant lead. It didn't help, and the show was shortly canceled. But Scotty's career was just getting started. He guested on dozens of shows as other Italian characters, from detective shows like Mike Hammer and Peter Gunn, to anthology shows like Love American Style and Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color, to westerns like The Rifleman and Gunsmoke, and tons and tons of sitcoms like The Addams Family, The Flying Nun, and Batman. He didn't only play Italians, though. He also played Mexicans, Frenchmen, Russians, Indians, and in a most unfortunate instance, a Japanese soldier in two episodes of Gilligan's Island. IMDb lists him as having over 288 acting credits dating back to the late 40s. Scotty also appeared in his share of movies, including How Sweet It Is, two Herbie the Lovebug films, and Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather, in which he played Nazarene, a baker in need of Don Corleone's help. Vito Scotty's last role was in Barry Sonnenfeld's underrated 1995 crime caper Get Shorty, in which he played a restaurant manager. He passed away a year later of cancer at the age of 78. His obituary called him a man of a thousand faces, but he was really America's Italian uncle, always there to make you smile before saying, eh, scusa me. Another of America's favorite Italians was the one mentioned in that clip. Phil Rizzuto's baseball career made him a Hall of Famer, but his TV career made him an absolute legend. Phil Rizzuto's nickname was The Scooter, which befit his almost childlike physical presence. He was just five foot six and 150 pounds when he played, a scrawny kid born in Brooklyn whose family moved to Queens when he was 12. But he was good enough at shortstop to get tryouts for the Dodgers and New York Giants, both of whom told him to beat it. Dodgers manager Casey Stengel told Rizzuto to quote, go get a shoe shine box, an insult he wouldn't forget even when the old professor became his manager with the Yankees. Stengel would later call Rizzuto quote, the greatest shortstop I have seen in my entire baseball career, and I have seen some beauties. It was the pinstripes who took a chance on Rizzuto, and, as is usual in sports, the rich ended up getting richer for it. By his own admission, his job was pretty simple. Quote, I hustled and got on base and made the double play. That's all the Yankees needed in those days. End quote. But that's underselling the fact that he was an integral part of one of the greatest teams in baseball history. 
With power hitters like Yogi Berra and Joe DiMaggio, and eventually Mickey Mantle on the roster, Rizzuto's bunting was an especially valuable weapon for scoring runs. He led the American League in sacrifice hits five times and was in the top ten eight times. He also led all AL shortstops in double plays three times, and his defense made DiMaggio's life in center field much easier in the Yankee Clippers' own words. Rizzuto joined the Yankees in 1941 after spending a few years in their minor league system. They won the World Series that year, beating the Dodgers in five games. In his 10 full major league seasons, Rizzuto went to nine series and was part of seven championship clubs, including a dynastic run of five straight Yankees titles from 1949 to 1953. Individually, Rizzuto's best season was 1950, when he hit a career-high 324 with 66 RBI, 125 runs scored, 200 hits, and 92 walks, and was named American League MVP. He'd play in five All-Star games over his 13-year career, three seasons of which were lost when he served in the Navy from 1943 to 45. His playing career ended on a sour note, though. By the mid-50s, Scooter was a part-time player in his late 30s, and the Yankees were ready to move on. So on Old Timers Day 1956, they cut Rizzuto to make room to add outfielder Enos Slaughter. Shocked at first by the abruptness, Rizzuto was quickly offered a chance to join Nell Allen and Red Barber in the Yankees' booth for TV and radio broadcast, and thus began the second and most enduring phase of Phil Rizzuto's career. Very few local sports broadcasters gained national fame. Despite being as New York as construction on the BQE, Phil Rizzuto became known across the country as a baseball institution. His ubiquitous catchphrase of, Holy cow! is still associated with him years after he stopped broadcasting, and even after his death in 2007 at the age of 89. It's been the punchline for an entire episode of Seinfeld, and has been used in the top 40 staple Paradise by the Dashboard Light by Meatloaf. Not bad for a guy who spent whole innings talking about his wife's cooking and his golf game before beating the traffic home. Three days after working with Hall of Famers Allen and Barber, Rizzuto was ready to quit. Howard Cosell told him he'd never last because he looked like George Burns and sounded like Groucho Marx. He not only stuck it out, but he spent 40 years in the Yankees' booth, retiring in 1996. There was a time, according to his New York Times obituary, when the scooter was, quote, a conventional announcer. But if you grew up during the later half of his broadcasting career, you knew him as anything but conventional. Baseball was often a secondary subject whenever the scooter was on the mic. He would tell viewers at home about his wife Cora's lasagna, extol a delicious cannoli he had in an Italian restaurant recently, send birthday wishes to your aunt in Forest Hills, get on his partner's cases about literally anything, or try to find work for his son Phil Jr. Rizzuto never called anyone by anything other than just their last name. So his partners Frank Messer and Bill White were just Messer or White. That went for Mercer, Seaver, Cerrone, anyone else. The only time anyone ever heard Scooter use White's first name was when he accidentally read the wrong cue card during an intro to a Yankees broadcast and welcomed viewers by saying, I'm Bill White. All while the real Bill White sat next to him laughing his ass off. Hi everybody, welcome to New York Yankee Baseball. I'm Bill White. Wait a minute. (laughs) If you worked alongside Scooter in the booth, you'd best be prepared to go solo because it wasn't unusual for him to take off well before the game was over so that he could get home to his house in New Jersey. The camera would sometimes show a shot of the George Washington Bridge as they came back for commercial, and the announcers would joke, there goes Scooter, stuck in traffic. 
in Jim Cott's first year as a broadcaster with the Yankees during a cold night in Cleveland. Rizzuto told the former pitcher that he had to step out to the bathroom. When they were coming back from commercial and a producer asked Cott where Scooter was, he said the men's room. But the producer knew. Scooter was already halfway towards their hotel, leaving the rookie Cott to do play-by-play on air for the first time by himself. Once, during an extra inning game, Rizzuto asked partner Frank Messer if he wanted a coffee. Messer said yes, but the Scooter disappeared. The next day, before another game, Rizzuto entered the broadcast booth and handed Messer his cup of coffee like nothing happened. Everyone that's ever worked with Rizzuto or heard him call a game has these stories. I remember him breaking Rick Cerrone's balls during a game in the early 90s. The ex-catcher had gotten his daughter two tickets to the game for her birthday, and Scooter found seats in the nosebleeds unacceptable. Cerrone, you're a cheap father, he said. I will never forget those words as long as I live. Holy Cow, by the way, was the product of a high school coach who advised Rizzuto to say that instead of profanity. When the Yankees retired his number 10 in 1985, they presented him with an actual cow as a gift. The bovine must have not been a fan because it stepped on Rizzuto's foot and knocked him down. As beloved as he was, Rizzuto had a rough time gaining legitimacy among the baseball elites. He missed out on being elected into the Hall of Fame for over a decade. But when Ted Williams, the splendid splinter himself, said that Rizzuto's play was the difference between the Yankees being a dynasty and his Red Sox coming up short year after year, Scooter's case began gaining traction. He was finally elected via a special vote by the Veterans Committee in 1994. Rizzuto himself never thought he was Cooperstown material, but it's very hard to imagine baseball without him. Phil Rizzuto was name-checked again on the Golden Girls in Season 5's Triple Play, written by Gail Parent. Sophia suddenly starts buying some gifts, but Dorothy isn't buying her explanation as to where the money is coming from. Look what I got, Dorothy. A surprise for you. Oh. <laughs> oh. Oh, look at these watches. They must have cost you a fortune. They did. Where'd you get the money? Is that what you say to someone who just bought you a gift? Ma, I asked you a question. Uh, I never told you this, Dorothy, but I'm a special friend of Phil Rizzuto. (laughs) Turns out a clerical error at the Social Security office has resulted in Sophia getting extra checks every month. Dorothy eventually convinces her to send the money back, but if she needed cash, she could have just went to the money store. In the early 1970s, Rizzuto started doing a series of TV commercials for the money store a shady-sounding subprime home equity lender originally based out of New Jersey. While the scooter could sometimes be seen at night or weekends doing Yankees games, he could always be seen all day long in these terribly cheesy ads that ran almost nonstop into the 1990s. Some home equity lenders tease you with low introductory rates, not the money store. Right now, we're offering qualified homeowners fixed-rate home equity loans as low as 7.5%. That means after 90 days, your low rate would be 7.5%. And after two years, just 7.5%. The money store guarantees your low fixed rate will never go up. Apply right now. 1-800-LOAN-YES. The money store where America goes for money. In his book, Uppity, Bill White says that the money store made millions thanks in large part to those ubiquitous commercials. So much so that people thought Rizzuto owned all of, or at least a piece, of the operation. Of course he didn't, but he did sometimes plug the store during Yankees games, something the producers didn't like one bit. 
and when he asked Rizzuto if the money store broke your legs if you didn't pay them back, the scooter's retort was, White, you can't say that. Rizzuto was eventually replaced in the ads by another baseball legend, Orioles star Jim Palmer. The money store moved in the late 1990s to Sacramento, where it financed and built its own unique ziggurat-shaped office building. But the company went under a short time later. The building is now the home of the California Department of General Services. A new money store is up and running and based out of New Jersey again. But without Phil Rizzuto to pitch for them, I'm not sure how long they'll last. Rizzuto always acted as a de facto arm of the Yankees' PR department. Everything was always about them. A player who made a mistake was gently criticized as a huckleberry. And when he heard of the death of Pope Paul VI during a game in 1978, Rizzuto signed off by saying, well, that kind of puts a damper on even a Yankee win. The Yankees came up a few times on the Golden Girls as punchlines, although they weren't about their status as baseball's evil empire. In season three's Mr. Terrific, written by Kathy Spear and Terry Grossman, Blanche is going through a similar type of moral quandary as Sophia was in Triple Play. She's received an expensive bed instead of the cheaper one she actually bought, and she's wondering if she actually could get away with it without anyone noticing. Sophia, she can't keep that bed. That'd be like stealing. It's only stealing if they find out. <laughs> well, the bed's in my bedroom. Who's gonna know? Everyone who knows the bunt sign on the New York Yankees. <laughs> Was Sophia referencing Phil Rizzuto's notable bunting ability? Or Blanche's being a slut? That's probably the latter. While that's going on, Rose is dating Mr. Terrific, the host of a children's show that's part Captain Kangaroo and part George Reeves' Superman, but in no way related to the actual DC Comics character who's named Mr. Terrific. Our Mr. Terrific is played by actor Bob Dishy, whose face should be very familiar to any viewers of Law & Order, where he played recurring and often losing defense lawyer Lawrence Weaver. But even before he joined the cast of that venerable show in the early 1990s, the Brooklyn-born Dishy had had a long career in TV, movies, and on Broadway. After graduating from Syracuse University, he spent two years in the cast of Damn Yankees until he was drafted into the Army in the late 1950s. There, Dishy toured bases as a star in the all-Army show called Rolling Along. He returned to the home front to act in a TV movie version of Damn Yankees in 1967 and continued his stage career in shows like Flora, The Red Menace, Something Different, The Goodbye People, and Sly Fox, for which he won a Drama Desk Award and was nominated for a Tony in 1977. By then, Dishy was already a frequent presence in TV shows like The Mary Tyler Moore Show, All in the Family, Barney Miller, Love American Style, and Columbo, in which he played Sergeant Wilson for two episodes. His movie roles have also included disaster movie spoof The Big Bus, Brighton Beach Memoirs, My Boyfriend's Back, and Along Came Polly. Dishy has been married to Electric Company actress Judy Graubart since 1986. The two also co-starred with Al Pacino in Arthur Hiller's dramedy Author Author in 1982. Dishy's last big role was in 2014's The Angriest Man in Brooklyn, one of the final movies Robin Williams made before his death. Let's do one last Yankees reference from earlier in Season 3 of The Golden Girls. Rose finds out that her Uncle Hengelblotter has died and left her custody of his baby. There were a few episodes in which the girls wondered how they'd handle motherhood again, and in this one, Blanche raises the question about doing it without a man around. 
Oh, girls, we have a big problem. What is it, Blanche? Well, we're all women. No. Sure we are, Dorothy. Oh, shut up. <laughs> I'm reading this Spock book on baby care, and he says it's very important for a young child to have a male role model around during its formative years. Now, what are we going to do? We'll all wear Yankee caps and scratch our behinds after every beer. The whole conversation is moot because the baby, of course, turns out to be a huge pig. But before the girls can send his bacony ass back to St. Olaf, they learn that if they can take care of him for just a little while, Rose will inherit $100,000. I won't spoil the ending, but suffice to say, the girls don't end up living high on the hog. Bringing Up Baby was written by Mort Nathan and Barry Finero, and had two notable guest stars. One was Parley Bear longtime TV character actor who played the lawyer who dropped Baby off at the Golden Girls' house. Bear's career started in 1950, and he made hundreds of appearances on shows like The Addams Family, The Andy Griffith Show, Bewitched, Dukes of Hazard, and The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet, where he played neighbor Herb Darby for over 60 episodes. He also starred in movies Licensed to Drive and Dave, and voiced Ernie the Keebler Elf in the long-running series of TV commercials. Parley Bear passed away in 2002 of a stroke at the age of 88. The other big guest star of Bringing Up Baby was the very real 300-pound pig at the center of the episode. Animal lover Betty White, of course, was excited that she got to sleep with an actual pig in the episode, and apparently the boar was an adept actor. Director Terry Hughes said some of his stars could learn a thing or two from him, too. Quote, On the night of the taping, the pig was great at hitting his marks and crossing through the room correctly. In fact, the next week, as we were rehearsing a scene, Estelle had to cross the room, and she said to me, I can't figure out how to get the timing to work here. So I said to her, well, the pig did it. After that, the pig did it became one of our internal catchphrases. End quote. As for the Yankees caps, the famous interlocking NY logo first appeared on the team's uniforms in 1909, when they were still known as the New York Highlanders. The logo had originally been designed by Tiffany and Company in 1877, for a medal of valor given to a police officer who had been shot while on duty. Highlander's owner, William Devery, had been New York's police chief, and when he wanted a new logo for his team, he kind of just co-opted the one from the medal he saw 20 years prior. It's been in use ever since. In fact, the Yankees have barely changed their look since 1912, when they added the similarly famous pinstripes to their home uniforms. Even by then, sports writers were sick of typing out Highlanders and frequently opted to use the shorter Yankees name that had been used casually for the team. In 1913, the organization decided to make the name official. Whether they're the Highlanders or the Yankees, there can be only one. Just before the recording of this podcast, Golden Girls producer Paul Junger Witt passed away at the age of 77 of cancer. Needless to say, I would not be here doing this, and you probably wouldn't be listening to this show without him. I didn't know the man personally, but his death is a sad one for TV lovers and he leaves behind an incredible legacy of entertainment that few can match. In addition to the Golden Girls, Witt also helped bring to life the Partridge Family, Soap, Benson, Blossom, and Empty Nest, as well as feature films Three Kings, Insomnia, and Dead Poet Society. The first project he collaborated with partner Tony Thomas on has a sports connection. We talked about Brian's song back in Episode 7 of this podcast, and the story of Friends and Chicago Bears Brian Piccolo and Gail Sayers resonated with Witt and Thomas, as the latter told METVLegends.com. 
The first project we worked on was uh, actually we like to say Brian's song because it's much better to say Brian's song, uh, and it kind of was. The material was in front of us prior to anything else we did. Uh, Bill Blinn's outline, which was just stunning, just stunning. And what was the response once again? Gigantic. I mean, it was it was a home run from the from the very beginning. You know, it just was over the top uh, success. It lived up to the script in the end. Uh, I think that really cemented. Uh, Paul and I worked around the clock in the editor room. There was you know there was an air date that had to get on and. And we needed to find more footage uh, of the NFL stuff, of the real Gale Sayers. And we reworked the scenes with Bud, as I said, as a very good editor. And we really worked around the clock together. You know, that foxhole kind of mentality, the two guys together working on it. And uh, I think that really cemented our relationship and created a product that we knew, okay, we're a good team. It was Witt who told his wife, Susan Harris, about NBC Vice President Warren Littlefield's idea for a show about older women living in Miami. Harris had felt burnt out after writing and producing all four seasons of Soap, but the concept of what was then known as Miami Nice intrigued her, and she, Witt, and Thomas mapped out the show's formula in fairly short order together. As much credit as we give the actors, writers, and directors of the show, it was the producing trio that defined what the Golden Girls would be before anyone ever set foot out onto the lanai. Thank you, Mr. Witt. Rest in peace. Next time on Golden Girls Sports, we celebrate some of the show's funniest lines, which used sports as a metaphor for literally anything, but mostly for sex. Golden Girls Sports is written, produced, and narrated by Dan Saracini. The theme is Golden Sunrise, instrumental version by Josh Woodward and is available at freemusicarchive.org. Visit goldengirlssportspodcast.com for show notes and references and follow us on Twitter at Golden Girls SP. Thanks for listening. <laughs>